Um, and the other one, the one that we're going to talk about today, was the anchor. And so you could go to a, you know, a catacomb where they, you know, they bury the dead, or or just like a little like house or something, and there might have been like an anchor on the mantle, and that would make the Christians comfortable that the people that they're with are safe company. It was their symbol. And it's based off of that Hebrews 6.19 passage, which I'll read for you. Kind of at the end, it says that we have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. And so that imagery of an anchor that's behind the curtain, that tethers us behind the curtain, was the symbol that they used to describe them were an anchored people. All right, and so that's, I feel like as we get into the, this passage in Colossians, this section of Colossians, that's the, like Paul's main thrust right now, is that he saw, Paul saw his sufferings, the things that we're learning about in Acts, his sufferings as worth it, they were totally worth it, so far as in that the church would be anchored to the hope of the gospel tethered to the hope of the gospel, the hope of glory, and that hope would be marked by a maturity in Christ. And I think that's where we're headed today, okay? So just to give you the big picture before we get into it. So quick recap, he starts the letter by just expressing a thankfulness, okay? That, man, Epaphras came and told me about the good things that the Lord's doing in you, and he and Paul is so thankful for that. He prays for them. He, you know, he prays like for you know, he, I've heard of this good fruit that the Lord is doing in you. And then he ends up praying for them and sharing that prayer for them. That I want him to do even more, more abundantly. And so he, t- he tells them that prayer. And then he talks about the preeminent one, his son, who, who is the way of redemption. Okay. And so he, he, he moves like, I'm praying for you guys. How can I even share these prayers? Because of this preeminent one, the one above, the supreme one, the one above everything else. He's the one that hears me and makes this possible. And so he talks about, that was like that big passage last time we were together on the, um, the firstborn of all creation who created all things and is now reconciling all things to himself. And so that brings us to our passage today, starting in 21. You'll see Paul does this cool thing. Many of you guys are photographers. I know that where he's zooming in and zooming out. He's giving you the in-tight picture, the personal picture, and then he's zooming out and giving you the grander picture. And so he ends our last section in verse 20 saying, through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things. All things. That means things in heaven and things on earth. All things Christ is reconciling to himself. And then you see in verse 21, he, he zooms in. He zoomed out with that, the big picture, And now he zooms in, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's one big sentence. Welcome to Pauline Letters. All right, so we're going to try to break this sentence down before we move on. In this section, you're going to see the nature of the people, your problem, my problem, the Colossian church, the nature of their problem, and the solution to that problem. Okay, so first thing you see is that they're al- 
you guys were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Alienated is like means some from someone else, from another. And so we talk about aliens in terms of being from another country. You're from another. And so the people, the nature of the relationship to God, the nature of our relationship to God before we we are reconciled to Christ is we're alienated from you. The, the, the statistics will show us that there are some in this field right now that are alienated from God. They are not of God. They are separate from God. That's the nature of their relationship. Alienated from another and hostile in mind. Maybe your Bible reads uh, enmity or enemies or hateful in your mind. And that is the, the sense of it, that not only are you separate, but there's actually a hatefulness towards God before we come into relationship with him. And you see this, you know, I know we talk a lot about evangelism. We're big fans of it here. You should be too. And so, you know, Kevin, who's running the Ocean City uh, mission trip coming up, will tell you, you know, the times he goes out, those that are alienated to God will actually show a hatred towards God, a hatred towards him as he shares about God. And so it's not just separation, it's also enmity. It's also, there's a degree, a characteristic of hatefulness. And it says doing evil deeds. So your, your separation and your hatefulness is proved by your evil deeds. The sin nature, the rebellious nature, the, the, the fleshly passions that you adhere to or you give yourself over to that that characteristic of your relationship with God is marked by your evil deeds um, the I thought the um, the uh, Christian standard Bible says once you were alienated and hostile in your minds expressed in your evil actions it's the expression and many of you guys that have come to know the Lord look back and you remember those e those evil deeds that you just gave yourself over to the passions of your body, the passions of your mind, and whatever they wanted to do, you just bowed down to. And you remember that. And it goes on, he says, this, so that's the problem, that's the nature of the problem. Okay, we're separated and we're hateful towards God. But it says, he has, in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Okay, so that's the, the way, the solution to be made right with God, a reconciliation. And what is the means of that reconciliation? How does it happen? You look down in his body, the body of Christ, his physical body by his death. Okay, this is this helps us to understand the importance of the incarnation. We talk about this at Christmas. We don't really usually talk about it. What is it? July, June? What, what month is it right now? June. We don't usually talk about the incarnation in June, but this passage here is proving the importance of the incarnation. It didn't say, there's ghost drummer over here. Um, it doesn't say in his spiritual body. It is actually his fleshly body. That Jesus left glory, came and inhabited a human body, a truly human body, fully human and he did that to represent us, okay? Like it's like a representative identity for us. And so that he can make this incarnation, or sorry, this reconciliation happening. Hebrews 2, we're going to keep going back to Hebrews today. And this helps us to understand what, why that incarnation is so important. That it, 
this is part of a bigger picture. I'm going all over the place right now, but we haven't got to the teachings that the Gnostics were teaching the Colossian church yet. We're going to get to that next time I teach. But Paul is writing, kind of setting the groundwork to address the Gnostic teaching. And as he sets the groundwork, you're starting to see some of the themes come out. And so this is one of them that they didn't think that God was, Jesus was truly fully human. And so he's kind of addressing that the reconciliation that we can have in Christ is based on his incarnation, is based on his being fully human. Hebrews 2 says this, Hebrews 2 chapter, or verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same thing. So the children are flesh and blood. Jesus partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's those who have faith. Therefore, he had, listen to the thrust of that, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people, to be, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus had to be made into a human form for that reconciliation to fully take, to fully be available to us. He had to represent us in all our weakness. So what is the condition then? This is a scary verse. 23, those first two words might shake you a little bit. If indeed... You continue in the faith. How do we do this? Because we know that salvation can't be taken away from us. It says he can, no one can snatch that from his hands. God holds our salvation. Who's going to snatch that from his hands? But here we see Paul saying, if indeed you continue in the faith. Well, it's not a condition like an if-then statement. A lot of computer programmers here love the if-then statement. And it's, he doesn't do it then. It's just if. And so he's not saying if you stumble along the way, you're going to be revoked from this reconciliation. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that the, the proof of your reconciliation will be found in that you persevere to the end. It's proving. It's maybe uh, it might be read this way. Above reproach before him, assuming that you continue in the faith. There's an assumption that Paul has that those that are bought with the blood of Christ and have faith in him and are reconciled to him, made friends with him, are going to continue with him. They might stumble along the way in the walk. Like I have stumbled along the way in the walk. But the proof will be in the end that not only will there be fruit of faith, there will be fruit of repentance. Turning back to him like the prodigal son knowing his father is there as a good father, waiting for, rec for reconciliation. And so the proof, there's an assumption that we will continue in the faith. There's room for this in, in Jesus' own words. You guys know the, the parable of the soils, the, very, the different soils that the seed was thrown into. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And he says that, there's some that are thrown onto rocky soil that look like there's fruit there. 
it pops up real quick. There's a lot of joy to the reception of this message of reconciliation. But then what happens? The world chokes it out or the, the sun beats down on it. The heat takes it and burns it up because the root didn't go deep enough. There was too many rocks in the soil. And so we might say that person confessed faith in the Lord. They came up. They prayed the prayer of salvation. But then years later, they're nowhere near the Lord. And they're not interested in turning back to the Lord. And they go the rest of their days trusting in what the world offers. Did that person, just because they prayed a prayer of faith, receive the Lord? I think Paul would say no. I think he would say there was no actual reconciliation that happened. And I think Jesus' parable makes it clear that there's room for that kind of thing to happen. That doesn't mean the person can never come back to the Lord, truly. But it certainly doesn't mean that there's a saving faith within them. That F.F. Bruce, who says things better than I usually say him, says it this way. Continuance, he's implying continuance in the faith. Continuance is the test of reality. Continuance is the test of reality. What is real will continue on. And so if it is not real, it won't continue on. So hopefully that settles as you see, if indeed that settles you, especially if you're in a season of your life now that you have been struggling with things you know that is not walking with the Lord, the things of the flesh. Living into faith means expressing the fruit of, repentance, fruit of the Spirit through repentance. And so you can actually prove your faith by turning back to him and knowing that he is there to receive you once again as one that is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Okay? So we're going to continue going forward here. He talks about that, that if the, 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 the expression of that continuing faith would be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Three terms that just describe like a founding, like a firmness. Okay, he's already expressed that he's happy about where they're at. And he's saying that's going to continue. Okay, a fruit of that, as these false teachers come in and try to shake you around, a fruit of that reconcili reconciling work that my son did is that you're not going to move. You're, you're, that anchor is going to hold. Okay, and he says, uh, talking about this gospel, this gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so we're moving into this next section. He's kind of finished talking about Jesus and his work of reconciliation. He's ta finished talking about Jesus' ministry. Now he's going to kind of talk about his ministry. And we're like, hey, Paul, you're not supposed to be boasting about your ministry. And we're wondering, what's, what's going on here? He's going to spend maybe six, seven verses talking about how much pain he's going through on their behalf. And we might think he's just kind of parading around how good he is or how, how sacrificial he is. And I think we, can, we are safe to assume that that's not his intention, right? It's not his intention at all to just boast about himself. So if that's not his intention, what is his intention? <clears throat> I think Paul here is clearly grouping himself in, like he's not saying I'm the only one that went and preached the gospel to all creation, right? He's saying, of which I, Paul, became a ministry, minister. He's saying that the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, the, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ascension of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit coming down for the sake of Jesus Christ, all of that was the proclamation of the gospel to all creation. And now I've become a servant of that, a minister of that. Okay, and there's others that have done that as well. And I've become one of them. Almost like when, before social media, the good old days, that if, before even instantaneous communication, if a kingdom or a government wanted to get news to the, um, to its empire, to its constituents, if, a, if, if that wanted to happen, it came from a central area, and a, a, a decree went out. You think about the book of Esther. A decree goes out. As soon as that decree is made, it is enacted. But it, then these heralds, these people, these messengers, now then take it and go into the world to proclaim it more clearly, or to proclaim it succinctly, or to just get it to the people that need to hear it. And so... That's what Paul's, I think, describing here is that that message was proclaimed at the cross, at the resurrection, at the ascension, as the Holy Spirit came down. That proclamation went out, and now I become a servant of that gospel. Okay, I'm one of those heralds that's going out and talking about that. And I think that the reason he wants to tell the Colossian church that is not to boast, but it's to give credibility to what he's about to say right Paul's in Rome right now probably in you know in house arrest or prison and he's imagining he's hearing reports of these teachers coming in and trying to shake the foundation of what he left or what the gospel message left in them okay he's trying they're trying to shake it and so there's a little bit of like a fatherly a paternal concern Okay, it's like imagining you're sending your kid off to college for the first time. You're not sure what kind of things they're going to hear that are going to shake them around. And there's like a, there's a, a building up of like just that paternal instinct or, or maternal instinct to be concerned. And so he wants to send a message. He wants to send it with some weight behind it. He wants to talk to them about this, but he wants to send it with some weight. And so he, he builds his credibility by talking about these troubles that he's going through, these sufferings, these hardships. You know, look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's talking about his experience that we've been reading about in Acts. Okay, that not only is he in prison, but he was, you know, um, you know, he's been, uh, rocks have been thrown at him. He's had to escape you know, from different towns and stuff like that, certainly despised by the people around him, all right? So these, he's gone through these suffering moments, and he's saying that, he's telling them that, not to boast, but to say, listen to my words, because I think this message is so worthy of all of that. I rejoice in that for that sake, okay? As long as you hear the, the weight of my words, I will gladly go through what I'm going through. Okay, you can imagine the false teachers weren't suffering for their message. You know, as they come in and try to bring people into their fold and talk about the secret things that only they know, they weren't willing to go to jail for what they were going, you know, talking about. And Paul's saying that that means the message isn't very worthy. It's not very valuable. I'm worried to do anything 
so that you hear the value of this message. It's a line of argument that we use with our kids, like I said. I use it with our kids, you know, our, our three young kids, and sometimes what we say, they don't like. Believe that, parents. I'm just warning you. You're going to tell your kids some things, and they're not going to like them. Right? But in those moments, I tried to take this line of reasoning with them. Have I proven myself to be about you, to be caring about you, to be sacrificial towards you? to do things that are in your best interest and to try to, to even go above and beyond and give you good experiences and good pleasures. That I know you, I know the things that you like. Have I shown that to be true? Well, if you, sh- if you trust me in my nature about you, then you can trust me in this instance when I tell you don't run in the, ca- run in the street when the cars are coming. Hey, that's not going to be good for you. So trust me because you trust my disposition towards you. I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate to the Colossian church. Trust my disposition. As these people come and tell you things that tickle your ears, things that want to draw you away, trust that I am in jail for this message and I'm willing to do anything else I need to do so that you hear the importance of staying firm on the gospel. So he rejoices in his suffering. He rejoices in it. That's hard to do. Many of us have gone through suffering. I know all of us will go through suffering. Some of you are younger and you're, you're the most, the worst suffering is you didn't get a lollipop after you got a haircut or something like that. You know? But I know plenty of your stories that your suffering is a little more poignant than that. A little more stabbing than that. A little more enduring than that. And I think I don't think that Paul is trying to minimize suffering right now. I don't think he's trying to say, like, it's just, it, it just whatever. This is so much better, he's trying to say. He talks about, like, when there's these light and momentary afflictions that we endure for an eternal weight of glory. He's not trying to minimize what we go through that's hard on this earth. The loss of a loved one. Okay, the... The job that is so taxing to go to every day that it's just enough to get yourself out of bed. But you just know you're going to go and you're just going to be under the weight of it all day as there's gossip and bickering and one-upping all day. And you just live in that feeling trapped. Or waiting for a family to start, you know, wanting a family to start and, and waiting for that. There's suffering that is hard. He's trying to, not trying to minimize it. He's just trying to say like, What is on the other side is so much worthy that it does put it into perspective. That the God of creation, this is, I was spending a lot of time meditating on this thought. Why does he give us promises? Why does God, the creator of all things, communicate to us his promises towards us? He doesn't have to do that, right? He doesn't have to do that. He, he could just determine and do without ever communicating those things. He could do that in salvation. He could do all of it without communicating why he's doing it or that we can trust him in that. So he, that communication part, that the fact that he even gives us promises, says so much about his desire for us to be encouraged. He wants us to be encouraged. He wants us to have hope 
at the center of our core so that when we do go through these things, we have those promises that deliver to us encouragement, deliver to us hope. That is who he is. And I think that Paul knows that and he's experienced that. And he wants to pass that on. He wants to be a, a hope giver, so to speak. And so we do come to that challenging, ver- challenging words. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It feels like, wait, are you saying that Christ's afflictions weren't enough? That you're going to do something to provide for what's missing in what Christ did? He's not saying that. Okay? He's not saying that what Christ did at the, church, or at the cross wasn't enough. He's saying that the same things that Christ went through in his ministry as he walked the earth, that not having a place to lay his head down, the, the being despised by the people that he came to serve, the, the being pressed in on and, and, having, and being so worn out that he has to you know, try to escape so he could get some rest. That type of suffering, that type of hardship, Paul's saying, I'm filling up in my body what the church needs for its sake that is similar to what Christ was doing. Um, now, you guys know the imagery, right? The, the church is Christ's body. He is the head and we, those that are in Christ, are his body. And Paul is saying, as his body, I'm continuing as his hands and feet to do the things that he did, for the sake of his message, for the sake of the, his kingdom. And so I'm, I'm willing to fill up. You just think like filling up like a thermometer from the, my, the bottom of my feet to the tippy top of my head. I'm willing to do anything in line with those afflictions. And what's he say? For your sake. For the sake of his body, that is the church. Verse 25, of which I became a minister. Again, continuing that same thought, a servant. According to the stewardship from God that was given me for you. So God gave me this role. God gave me this task to, to bring this, to serve this gospel. I serve it in this very affliction-filled way. But it's for your sake. And what is that stewardship? What is that task? That's the next little phrase. To make the word of God fully known. This is Paul's, he knows that this is his mission. And he takes whatever comes with that mission. I focus on the mission. If the the afflictions come along the way, that's okay. I got my eyes on the mission. And that is given to me by God to make the word of God fully known. And he unpacks that a little bit, okay? It's almost like he presents us this little box of the, the word of God being made fully known. And he starts to like, take things out to describe that, okay? That first thing he takes out is verse 26. What's the word of God? The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This word mystery, it's, you know, a very Pauline word. He talks a lot about it in Ephesians, and so if you want to do some more studying on a mystery, but it's, it's not a mystery like we think of mystery, like something that can't be resolved in our minds. It's just a mystery. Why is the sky blue? I don't know. It's just a mystery. You know, I'm sure someone can know what that is. Maybe Mark knows what that is, but it's a mystery. Like it's not a mystery in that it's never known. A mystery in the Bible means that it's not known, but it's being revealed. And so when we see mystery in the New Testament, it's always in the context of it was a mystery, but now it's revealed. And so what is that mystery? Well, 
I'm going to try to put it real succinctly because we don't have time to get into it all. But essentially, in the Old Testament, as God interacted with the nation of Israel, and through the nation of Israel interacted with the, the whole world, you would see little hints of God's plan to reconcile all things, as he said in Colossians. But it looks like Israel's the chosen people and that his blessing is only on the chosen people. But there's these little hints along the way that he, the, the people of Israel to be a light to the Gentiles, to all nations, and that those who actually bless the nation of Israel because of their God will actually be blessed in return. And so these little hints along the way that you can see there's a bigger thing happening, but we don't know the prophets, the, the, the patriarchs didn't know how it would fully pan out. And so that's the mystery, that, that there was something hidden about what God was doing in reconciliation, in the redemption of all things, but that mystery is now revealed to his saints. So as Christ came on the scene and fulfilled all those prophecies, as he went to the cross and bore the sins of the people, all people, as he tore the veil so that, that anyone can have access to his presence, there's no longer a holy of holies and everything else. As he did all those things, he's, he was revealing the mystery. This is what I meant by my redemption. That's going to happen through Israel, but a lot of times in spite of Israel. And so as they rejected him, he would, the, 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 as we've been looking at in Acts, the gospel would go to the Gentiles and be confirmed by the Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles. And then they'd go to the Jerusalem Council and, and describe uh, this kind of like, I didn't know that this is what God was going to do, but it's clear that he's doing it. And so that mystery is being slowly revealed. And that's what Paul is talking about. As he writes to Gentiles, he's saying, I was made a minister to steward this, this word of God being made fully known. And so as, I, as my message, as, as the message I was giving came to you, that mystery was hidden for ages and generations, but was now revealed to his saints, to them, to the Gentiles, or no, sorry, to the saints, that verse, 20, or verse 27, to the saints God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is the glory of the mystery? So the mystery is that he's bringing the Gentiles in. He's bringing all people in. And what's the glory of it? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is wild because most of us here are Gentiles. But we, I, I think if you guys are anything like me, often you get caught reading the book that we have before us like a Jew. But we're Gentiles. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, separated. And through the, what God, his redemption plan, that mystery was made known. And, got, and then Paul, or God used Paul and others to make that mystery known to the Gentile world that as a, you were separated as a dog, you know, just the, the despised people of the world, the not chosen people, and the way that makes every one of, one of us feel when we're not chosen. Remember when you were a kid and you didn't get invited to the sleepover, to the birthday party? You felt alienated from that, separated from that? But no, in Christ, 
The hope of the mystery, the hope of the glory of the mystery is that you, a dog, Christ would come and live in you. You would go into the Holy of Holies and be able to stand pure and clean before him because of the work of his son. Right? That is the hope of the glory. Verse 28 continues, Him, Jesus, we proclaim. See how he includes himself and the others that are doing that, that zooming in, zooming out. Paul includes himself by saying, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present what's the purpose of warning, what's the purpose of teaching, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So look, this is fun because in verse 21 he says, in verse 22 it says that he is reconciling you and Jesus is doing the presenting of you being holy and blameless and above reproach before God the Father. But then he says, we participate in that. As we share the gospel with each other, as we tether each other to that anchor, we warn, we teach with all wisdom, and so that we can be part of presenting everyone as mature in Christ. We join him in that work. And he says, for this I toil, struggling with all the, his energy, struggling with all of God's energy that he works, that he powerfully works within me. And he continues, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you that, and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want you to know about this struggle. I want, remember we talked about they were going to pass the letter around to the other area, the other churches in the area. So the, the letter to the Ephesians, maybe Philemon. Okay, these letters he wrote all at the same time and he sent them and he was hoping that as they finished the letter, they'd swap letters, okay? And then they'd be encouraged in a new way from the other letter. And so he's saying, listen, I, got, I want you guys to know how great a struggle I have for you, okay? And for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. He didn't know a lot of these people, personally. And why does he want them to know the struggle? So that their hearts may be encouraged. Why does he want them to know the struggle, his struggle? So that they would be knit together in love. Why does he want them to know his struggle? So that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, the thrust, the main point of this section of Colossians is Paul's laying the foundation for talking about these lies that people are going to come and tell them. These lies that have an inherent danger to believing. Because if they believe them, they are no longer hoping on Christ. They are no longer relying on Christ. They are no longer trusting in Christ alone. But they will have been moved to holding on to a different anchor. An anchor that is not held behind the curtain. An anchor that is easily moved. Okay? And so he's, he's, he's laying the groundwork to discuss those things specifically. But as he does so, he wants them to really know that the weight of his words are founded. The, they're given weight by the proof of what he's willing to suffer for on their behalf. 
And he wants that, he wants that hope that is built up because of that, the hope of the gospel, the hope of heaven, the hope of glory and the mystery. He wants all of that to create something in them. He said it in a few words, that they may be encouraged. We talked about that, that God gives us promises because he is a God who wants you to be encouraged, to have hope that things will get better. I think, you know, hope, you know, suffering, you know, it takes many forms as we kind of discussed a little bit. You've probably pictured the, the various sufferings, the various trials of your own life as we've been taught, as I've been talking, you probably played them back in your mind's eye or you're going through them even this very day. But I think one of the worst, you know, flavors of suffering is that one that feels like it's without cause or the one that feels like it's going to be endless. Nothing's ever going to change. I'm, this, this is my situation. This is our situation. This is the situation of a loved one and it's never going to change. And the hope of the, the glory of God, the hope of the gospel, the hope of this mystery is that that is not true. And that God gives promises so that hope can enter in and encourage us to trust that things will get better. We all know the, 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 the Sunday school answer that that's going to happen in totality as we're fully redeemed. Whether we leave and because of our early departure in death and we're before him in glory or that he comes back and makes all things new again. We know in the future is a time where we are confident things will get better. But that's not eternal life. Eternal life comes now. And the kingdom of heaven comes now and is enacted now as we have faith in him. And he wants that type of hope to come in and help us through our circumstances now. He want, Paul wants that hope to encourage them now as they get ready to take on the lies of the world. He wants also them to be knit together in love, for there to be a display of unity because of this mutual hope. He wants them to reach full assurance. Again, you hear those words of founding. You think about the wise and foolish builder that Jesus talked about at the Sermon on the Mount. That the wise builder founded his, his shelter, his home, his life on the rock. And that rock is Christ. And as he did that, when the storms came, it was able to stand. It was steadfast. It was stable. It was not shifting. It was fully assured. And that full assurance is based on the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So it's not a remember, it's not a mystery anymore. The gospel for us Gentiles is that he has included us dogs and it has told us that we can welcome the Savior of the world, into our hearts. And as we grow in that understanding, as we grow in the knowledge of that mystery, as we create a bigger vocabulary for that gospel, we can therefore be fully assured. Like that, that's why we like, we care so much about teaching the Bible here at Calvary Chapel. That when you go to a small group, it's found, it's, it's, there's a basis for God's word being the center of that, 
that unity in your fellowship. Because as we grow in that knowledge and that wisdom about this mystery, that's what provides full assurance for us. And I know many of us have felt the feeling of not being assured, and it is not a good feeling. When we feel like we lack assurance, what usually comes next is discontentment. And we know when we're, we are creatures that look for satisfaction, are we not? We are, there is definitely an implied reality in these passages that we are creatures, all of us. Paul knows that he is talking to creatures that are searching for significance, searching for satisfaction. And he's saying that that full assurance, that satisfaction is found in this mystery. And so go and learn about it. Go and be founded on it. Found your whole life on it. And as you do that, you will be assured. You will have satisfaction. And you won't go looking for what the world offers. Finishing up here, it says, his purpose statement, verse 4. I say this. I say all of this. This is what we've been getting at. The whole point that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That word plausible, that's a good qualifier because we think like we can just spot any lie out there. That's not how the enemy works. We've known this from the beginning. That's not how it worked in the garden. He doesn't go with the flat out lie. He goes with the lie that looks plausible. Okay? Paul knows this because he knows the redemption story. It's part of the redemption story that the enemy works deceitfully, not obviously. Okay? And so he knows that as we are creatures that look for significance, creatures that look for um, uh, satisfaction, we are liable as we search to be deluded by plausible arguments. And so Paul's, he told him why I'm telling you this. I'm telling you all this so that no one can delude you. No one can, no one can trick you. All right? You'll have ears to hear the lie. For though I am absent in body, I'm here in Rome, yet I'm with you in spirit. This is the love coming out of Paul. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That is, he knows he sees good things, but he reminds them anyway. Okay, that is what it means to be part of that us as like on this side, as we wrestle with our flesh and its desires and its passions. Paul knows this, and so he's saying, I'm happy. I see the good things the Lord is doing. But that doesn't mean we just take the put foot off the gas. That doesn't mean that. I see your good order. I see the firmness of your faith. But I'm going to continue to say these things to you so that you grow even sturdier. Complacency? We'll wait till the airplane goes by. Complacency is a sign of worship. Complacency is a sign of what you're, the object of your worship. And so if you've had a season recently of just not drawing near to the Lord, fighting the things of, that you know are of Him, fellowship with the saints, getting, um, giving yourself over to growing in wisdom and knowledge of his, this great mystery. If you, if you find yourself 
pushing back on those things. It's a sign of the, your object of worship has moved. The needle has moved. And he's saying, you're still connected. That you're, you know, for those of us in Christ, that anchor holds behind the veil, even if the ship has moved out from behind the veil. All right? The anchor is still back there. And so we can get back to, we can get back there because the anchor is holding us there. And so he wants to spur them on to continue to dig for a firmer foundation. He wants them... I think he wants you and I to know there's real danger in not being, not guarding our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds. You know, that, I know that if indeed statement from verse 23 didn't come with a then, like if indeed you continue in the faith. I know it didn't come with a back end then, but I think he is trying to imply if he's going to spend this much time talking about, this much time writing it down, this much effort putting these words to pen and paper, he's implying that there's a real danger to believing the lies of the world. There's a true and, what's that, clear and present danger. Good movie. And so, I think he wants us to know that as we read this word. So, maybe the Gnostic teaching isn't what we wrestle with. We firmly believe that Jesus was fully man. But I guarantee that there's lies out there that are entering in. And so we, I think an exhortation for us from this, his main point is to guard our minds, guard our hearts, guard our ears, guard our eyes. And we're, we're better guarded when we're in fellowship with others. When we have the true, the truth in our hearts, in our minds, in our hands, that's how we're, that's how we're guarded well. And my last point, your father in heaven wants you to have hope. I think he gave Paul this message for the Colossian church to, to deliver to them hope in a hopeless world. In a world that's going to be full of hard things. He's trying to deliver them hope. And if he's doing that then, I think he's trying to do that to us now. So open your eyes. How is the Lord trying to encourage your heart? How is he trying to found your life on a hope of heaven, a hope of the gospel, a hope of the mystery of this gospel? So that you can go into the rest of your days being able to, even if it's strange to you, rejoice in your suffering for the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, Lord, we thank you for so much. Lord, I'm praying that each of us here today, it could be said of us that our life is in good order. That there's a firmness to our faith. There's no wavering. There's no toying with the things of the flesh. There's no running to be satisfied by something other than you, even if it's a good thing. 
I, I'm praying that, that that would be the marks of our life. But as a realist, I know it's not, Lord. But the mystery of your gospel, that you've anchored us behind the veil into your presence, means that you're the one holding us from falling away. And so we allow that. We, we, we ask you to en- en- enliven our hearts to that, to that reality. That that would start to fill up in ourselves a hope that we, we do have your ear. That you're turned towards us with a good nature, a loving nature. And you want to stream life into our lives. And we may be abiding by the vine and bearing good fruit. And so, Lord, we, we want to worship you for being that God, the God that gives hope. And we want to receive it, Lord. So help us to do that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.